Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Fighting On Film, the podcast about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to cover it. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. I'm Robbie of RA Military History. Welcome everyone to the first episode. And what are we going to be discussing today, Robbie? Well, we are going to be discussing the 1946 classic that is uh, Theirs is the Glory which is a forgotten gem, and it's all about those glorious red devils. Just to give an overview of what the film actually is about and how it flows, it's basically, as Hearst himself says, it's a day-by-day uh, telling of the battle. So it, it looks at specifically the men of 1st Airborne Division and especially the men in Arnhem and Neustrieg. Um We don't see any American elements, uh, any of the other elements, uh, 30 Corps, etc. They're mentioned, but we don't see them on screen. And it premiered on the second anniversary of the battle on the 17th of September, 1946. It's not a normal war film by any stretch of the mind, is it? It's No, it's really not. A number of special uh, characteristics about it. One, it was filmed literally weeks and months after the end of the war. Yeah. And it features a cast which is almost entirely made up of people that were actually at the battle. There isn't really a cast. You know, there's not any names. Mm. The only name I thought of when I was doing some, well, when I was re-watching the movie yesterday, the only name you could make a case for is Stanley Maxted, because after this he has a film career, but at the time he wasn't an actor. It's kind of refreshing, really, Mm. because when you watch it, you know, when I watch St. Bright Ryan, I know I'm watching Tom Hanks. You know, I know I'm watching... Tom Sizemore? Tom Sizemore, yeah, I know I'm seeing actors. Yeah, it's a good point. Already, I'm sort of my disbelief has gone. Yeah, it does. It does sort of remove you from the moment. Mm, you know, you think what's Forrest Gump doing with the Thompson? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, though. 
you know, yeah. in this movie, you, you don't know who it is. You don't know who, who's that. And it's sort of, and it really kind of grips you and pulls you in at points. I, I feel that anyway. I know. I agree. I agree. I think that, I think the element that they aren't professional actors and you don't know any of them by name. For me, I saw the film when I was researching for my book on the PR. Nice plug. <laughs> Available at all good bookshops. <laughs> all, all, all good bookstores. Signed copies. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I uh, basically, I, I discovered the film when I was doing the research for, for the book. I knew that they were all men that had been at the battle yeah. when I sat down to watch it. I was sat there with my historian's mind, like my sure. historian's cap on thinking, oh, these men were actually mm. in battle. What, how did they feel doing this again? Are they the men that they're betraying? Are they yeah. men that were actually in this position doing this act, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. While I, I went into it, obviously, I wasn't removed by any big name actors. Yeah. You know, like John Mills could have been in this film. Yeah, easily. Like you know, Stanley um, Baker, he wouldn't have been out of place. Yeah. So, obviously, I, instead of that, I was, I was sat watching it thinking, these men were really there. Mm. So I, I have, there was another, like, kind of disconnect. But it, you know, doesn't impact the watching of the film. Not at all. I think... I think it adds a real layer of interest. It's such a unique movie in itself that it almost it's sort of defies genre, the genre in a way. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the top of my head or having seen many, many war films, anything that sort of comes close to replicating the actual events as closely as this film does. I mean, even from its, you know, from its production to its story to its actual showing, it's sort of, you know, its shots and things. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very unique in that regard. Yeah, there are. There's there's a number of unique aspects to it in that it in, it includes uh, footage that was filmed during the battle. Yeah, it's it, it includes footage which was filmed on the actual locations of the battle, not only with the men that were involved in the fighting, but also it's filmed on the ground where the battle took place. You know, it's more of a documentary. I, I always say. You know, I always feel yeah that you're watching. You know, you might as well be watching real time footage you know it, it's very odd you know it's almost like a lot li- you know these days it'd be like oh it, it's like a live stream yeah no yeah i can i can definitely see you know we hear that historians bang on about walking the ground well this film is like that it's it's, it's literally a war walk yeah it might as well be you know richard holmes would absolutely dig it of course, yeah I, I hope he i hope he saw it um, he must have seen it so who directed the film robbie that was brian desmond hurst yes we've been doing a fair bit of digging about about Brian Desmond Hurst recently, haven't we, for, for this podcast? And obviously did your um, your video on your channel about the film a month or so ago. Yeah, um, and he's a bit of a dude. You know, he actually, he's produced a lot more military movies than you might think. Um, you know, he produces Miss Grant Goes to the Door in 1940 as an anti-invasion yep. anti piece. Then he goes on to make a movie about American troops in Ireland and then after the war, obviously he makes this is the glory, but he also makes Malta Story. Yeah. Malta Story is infinitely better known than theirs is, definitely. Mm-hmm, massively. So in preparation for, for discussing the film, I picked up a copy of um, a book about the film written by, uh, I believe it's the nephew of, uh, of mm. Desmond Hurst. It's theirs is the glory, Arnhem Hurst and Conflict on Film by David Truesdale and Alan Esler Smith. And in the book, they have an excerpt from um, Hearst's memoirs, and he explains 
uh, how the film came about because it's, it's quite a special concept and it seems to have evolved fairly organically. Mm. So this excerpt from the, the book, uh, it says, um, the head of uh, Garmont News, which was like a, a newsreel company at the time, mm-hmm. came to me and soon after the war ended and asked me if I'd like to make a film about the Arnhem drop. When I heard that the film company proposed to do with the story, basically using shots and a few jokes. Yeah. So it'd be stock footage from the newsreels with a, with a voiceover. He says, I said to myself, this is not on. It was also suggested to me by the producer um, of the rank organization that we could use one of the most popular stars of the day. I said, no, he doesn't know one end of a rifle to the other. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Bold filmmaking from the, for the time at least. Yeah. Well to turn down a leading man. Yeah. That's a bold move. Yeah. So he continues. uh, There was nobody who appeared in the film officer or soldier who had, had not fought at Arnhem. It is a true documentary reconstruction of the event. In the scenario, we just followed the battle day by day. So there we yeah. go, straight from the horse's mouth. He saw it that's as a it. documentary piece. Yeah, and that and that is purely what that's what you get when you see the movie. Is it follows it follows it day by day. You, yeah. you get Stanley Maxted, B, uh, BBC war correspondent. He goes day three, day four, day five, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah, he he becomes the narrator, doesn't he? But the interesting thing there is. Um, the film doesn't have any credits. There's no credits at the beginning or the end of the film. There's just a dedication. Crawling text, isn't there? Yeah, it's um, a dedication to every man who fought at Arnhem. The film is an everlasting memorial to those who gave their lives. That's the, the introduction. And the, the working title was I Fought at Arnhem. Somewhere down the line, they changed the name, but you, you can tell from having that name on set, you're making a very matter-of-fact piece of movie, movie making. You're not sugarcoating anything. You're not making anything up. Matt knows this because he's got the book and I haven't. <laughs> Enlighten us, Matt. Yeah, so the uh, the producer, Castleton Knight, uh, sent out a memo where he proposed that he'd pay any man who came up with um, an interesting anecdote, something real, something that actually happened, um, five pounds, which is quite a sum in the, yeah. at, the, at the time. So it was a lot of money. Yeah, it was a particularly big bounty. So, you know, he was offering... Um, a bonus to any cast member who had been at the battle who could remember an interesting sort of like uh, everyday occurrence or you know something mm. something that would add a little bit of realism a bit of life a bit of uh, you know uh, panache you know he basically he came up with the idea you know obviously when he was speaking to the the cast members and you know they mm. they weren't saying anything particularly interesting and then all of a sudden one of them remembered something and you know, they they all they all reeled off a story, and it was you know it was something that made it into the film. Yeah. So there's 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 certain little bits in the film that you can you can um, sort of like after after you've watched it once or twice, you can spot and think that's a human element. That's I wonder if that was definitely. I wonder if that was one of those little stories that was submitted by the cast and the producers. Said, that's great. We're going to include that. This, this film was filmed literally months after the end of the war. Yeah, t- 10 months. Less than, I don't know. It, it was filmed in, I, I, I noticed in the book, it, it mentioned that it was filmed on location in the summer and autumn of 45. So we're talking literally like weeks to months here. It's like six weeks, two months, you know. Hitler's still fresh in the ground at this point. 
Yeah, know? exactly. Well, <laughs> I mean, at that time, Holland is Holland is still suffering from a terrible famine. Mm. At that point, you know that the, the food shortages are still very real at that point. And I think it's it's the it, the winter of forty four and forty five were particularly hard for for the Netherlands. There's a a lovely little um, website I came across called James Christie's personal blog, and his father fought at Arnhem, and then ten ten months later he was in the movie Bob Christie. And m- me and Matt were saying when we were planning this that was any did anybody use this film as sort of like an early form of coping with what they did or what they had seen there. And I think his his sort of writing, it, it kind of proves that, that even if they didn't realise it was doing something for them, it, it was. But as you, as you say, Bob Christie is an excellent example. And going back to somewhere where you lost friends and you fought hard to survive must have been, if nothing else, jarring and surreal. To be there, like ten, as you say, ten months later, back on the ground, everything looks the same because the cleanup. I don't know how. It, obviously, in the film, you can you can see that the, the the damages are still very much real, and it's 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 it looks very much like the battlefield probably looked at the end of September forty four. It it looks exactly the same. I mean, because he, the Bob, right? Well, James writes about his dad, mm. or his dad wrote the bit this part of the actual website but it says um the val sorry the van dolladrin laundry after the bat um where his, his dad was he goes what happened next was a blessing i now realized there was a sudden clamor up the lane to my right a middle-aged lady and a girl in her late teens were waving shouting crying laughing all at the same time the younger rang down towards me and i recognized her again the daughter of the van dolladrin family Behind her came her mother. I'd spent some hours in the afternoon of the 19th of September, 1944, near their house, awaiting the arrival of the rest of my troop from a gun position in the north of Oosterbeek. With them, I'd shared my boiled sweets and dehydrated porridge. They appeared delighted that I had survived the battle. I don't think you, you're never going to get that on the set of Saving Private Ryan, are you? And to, to jump off the comparison to Saving Private Ryan, that I would say that the, the the battle sequences that are shown in theirs is are probably the most realistic that had ever been seen up until that point of, of, of World War II. You know, this is all filmed outside. It's all filmed by uh, guys who were professionally trained soldiers at that point. They were, they were, they were veterans. They were, um, yeah. Army film and photographic unit cameramen, wasn't it mainly? You have uh, original footage as well and that's interspliced within the film and that's mm. a, that's a common element in a in in war war films of the period yeah i think in theirs is they splice things together really well and you it isn't jarring like in some films it'll, it'll be jarring where it'd be like it'll cut to like a, a dive bomber yeah I know, I know exactly what you mean you know there's certain john wayne movies where you know he's he's storming mm-hmm. i don't know okinawa or someone like that or Iwo Jima. And it sort of like cuts to something that was obviously filmed during the battle or during the campaign. If you if you watch a lot of if you watch a lot of um, footage that was filmed during the war by people in the field, then you can kind of spot it by frame rate, grain, shakiness. They're the if if you ever trying to spot this on on in a film, they're they're the they're the, the, the characteristics that initially like 
go, oh, wait, hang on. This isn't as smooth as, say, something filmed in a studio. But again, theirs is was filmed on location. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit more rough and ready than something that was filmed in a studio. Production-wise, the film's really interesting. It was it was cine- uh, the cinematography was done by Cecil Montague Pennington Richards, who worked with Hearst throughout his career. Worked on it with uh, in Scrooge as well, numerous other films. So, and he he became like a, a very well-respected cinematographer, and, and people really did like, um, mm. especially apparently, you, you know, they they admired his work, and he he was he was um, headhunted by other by other directors because the the his skill was such that. You know, he captured a lot with a little, you know, so to speak. Yeah, of course. You can tell in this movie, you know, that what they're using what they have. Yeah. You know, I say it a lot. You use what you've got, not what you've done, not what you don't. Well, these are like one. These are these are one camera, sort of like shots. Yes, it, it's got to be. It has to be. They really adequately put like put across the the atmosphere of of the fighting. Even even when it when the acting is a little bit stunted, and you know, these men aren't actors. No, they're not. There's a, no. you know, there's certain scenes where they're they're delivering their lines and they're doing their best. They're doing their best. Definitely. Yeah. These men are soldiers, they're not yeah. they're not trained actors. So it feels a little bit no. clunky in places. It can feel a bit slow sometimes. But I don't think that's that's not their fault. Not detrimental to the film either. No, it doesn't, no. It's just something you pick up on, but you still get the gist of the story and I don't know. I think for me, that adds another interesting element that these men were willing to tell the story by being actors, something that they'd never, ever done before. But then again, you think as well, like were they used to seeing cameras and stuff during the fighting real or proper? Because, you know, it not a common occurrence for every soldier. No, but definitely not. For, for the odd few that saw the glimpse of a, of a combat cameraman or, a, you know, an army film and photographic unit, personnel filming them i think you might not notice for one because they're dressed exactly like you exactly and in the heat of battle you're not yeah. really going to be looking but maybe they're kind of used to it because there's no there's never a scene where someone looks point blank at the camera for instance no and I, I wonder if i wonder if they had some you know some training you know they were yeah possibly they they, they obviously ran through it numerous times yeah of course We've picked a couple of our favourite scenes. I'll go first, because Matt said I should. Go for it. As I've already mentioned, um, Stanley Maxted does the commentary um, from day three up to the end of the movie. And he was a Canadian um, war correspondent who was working for the BBC at the time. In the movie, you can tell it's Stanley from the minute you see him, because he has a his beret has a badge with a P on it. So you know it's Stanley Maxted. I'm not quite sure what that P stands for. Could it be press? Press. There you go. See? Learn things every day. This is why Matt's on the podcast. He's st- <laughs> he he keeps me on straight and narrow. But so you see Stanley there and he's got his midget recorder. If you know anything about war correspondent, midget recorders are fantastic that you can record straight onto vinyl and then that can get sent off and be played the very same night as you recorded it. Um, and it's the only time I think that it's ever shown in a movie. I've certainly never seen one before. But the, the scene I want to talk about is it's a resupply scene. And I think we'll play a little clip from it now. 
A moment ago, we heard the engines of heavy aircraft, and now flying low to drop their supplies, I can see over the tops of the trees, Stirlings, Halifaxes, Dakotas, and now parachutes are blossoming out like bunches of chrysanthemums. What they dropped to us yesterday mostly went to the enemy, but it wasn't the RAF's fault, bless them. And now they seem, as they leave the aircraft, to be dropping much nearer to us. Some, a few, are even dropping in the ground. All those beautiful qualities. Stanley is doing his fantastic sort of broadcasting way of speaking where he goes, oh, those wonderful, those beautiful Air Force, you know, those wonderful boys of the RAF dropping all the stuff, footage of the Dakotas going down and the Mitchell, I think they're B-25s, going over. And a couple of those Dakotas smash into the ground. And when I saw that footage for the first time, I was like, did they film that? Did they actually film that for the movie? Because if they did, what's the budget? And then you go back and like, ah, stock footage. And it's just, it's just amazing footage. You know, it's It's awesome for the actual meaning of yeah. that word before it was bastardized. And he, he sort he sort of describes the, the the plane aiming for the German gunners, doesn't he? Yeah. I listened to the actual reporting um from that day. So it's rewritten to be more narrative. Yeah. So his parts of the movie are the only sort of narrative parts. They really help bridge the sort of movie to the next scene. There aren't really scenes in theirs is the glory. Yeah, it's but, it's kind of split day by day, isn't it? But they do sort of jump between set and sort of events that it flows doesn't it there's a definite flow so as we mentioned earlier some of the guys volunteered stories and and they make they make it into the film and then others are uh, sort of portrayals of events like there's the scene where uh, there's a sergeant manning two six pounder anti-tank guns near the end of the film and it's and it's it's never explicitly mentioned but it's quite clearly a reference to uh, sergeant baskefield um oh yeah yeah, yeah, and yeah. his VC action. That's interesting enough. I actually used to live. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In Burslem, where he was from, and I would walk past that statue. Oh, he has a statue? Yeah, he's got a statue of him holding a a shell. Oh, a six-pounder shell. Artillery rounds. Cool. Yeah, I used to walk past it nearly every day. Anyway, sorry, you carry on about Maxted. So yeah, he just he just tells it as he saw it. For me, when I first watched it, that's when you truly know you're watching a sort of documentary piece, especially from a guy who it was his job to witness it. I think that's why it's my favourite parts of the movie. Because it adds again, it adds that layer of authenticity that is there throughout the whole movie. Um, and that's why it's my favourite scene. 
So um, I've talked at length about my favourite scene. So Matt, please tell us what your favourite scene of theirs is, The Glory is, or favourite scenes. My, my favourite scene is, is one which obviously involves a piat. Oh, 100%. <laughs> one, of my, one of my areas of interest. Um, so when I was researching for the book, as I mentioned, theirs is the glory came up as I was, I was writing a section about appearances of the Piat on film uh, and in popular media. And there are not many, <laughs> as you would imagine, there are not many. The most famous by far is A Bridge Too Far. And that's not, not a, a, a bad representation of the Piat. They get quite a few things right. They get some things wrong, but that's the nature of film. The by far the very best representation of a piat on screen is theirs is there's the the very first time we see um the piat in action is against a uh, a charby which is a french tank and obviously to the uninitiated viewer they think that's just a tank but if you if you're interested in armor if you're interested in, in world war ii then you might know that that's not a German tank. That's not a Stug. That's not a Panther. That's not a Panzer. It's a it's a Charby. It's actually correct to the battle. So there were Charbys at Arnhem, and they were with um, Panzer Company two two four, and they were a training company with uh, the the, uh, the the armored. S- I think it was SS armored. Was it Ninth SS armored? Anyway, so the the, the Charby was actually present, and it's one of the Charbys. It's I think it's a Charby two. That's been converted to a, a Flammwagen, a Panzerkampfwagen uh, B2. Its its main gun's been replaced by a flamethrower. So the first time we see this tank on screen is there's men of the second lift. They're they're walking towards Arnhem. They're a few miles out. They're walking down a country lane. There's trees on both sides, fields on either side. It's one of those classic sunken lanes that you see on um, the photographs taken by the the uh, army. Uh, film and photographic unit. The first thing we see from the Sharbi, we don't actually see it. We see a jet of flame, and you think, "What the hell is that?" Yeah. And the men run for cover either side, and they start opening up. And you get all the way through the film. I noticed on on my last watching, there's this constant sound of stand gun fire. And if if you've ever heard like a, a submachine gun actually fire in person, it's sort of like it's not the right. It's not the crack of a rifle. It's it's a it's a different sound. There's a there's a certain sound to it, and there's you can you can hear in the in the, the audio of the film because they, I believe they filmed a lot of it with with live ammunition. Yeah, I think they might have. It it sort of sounds like they may have captured the audio live. Not sure, but so to get back to the tank, I've digressed onto some sten sten action there. That's fine. We love stens. Stens are brilliant. Everyone loves a sten. So the men the men open up with small arms and then a lad runs up and he throws what I think is probably a, a number 82 gammon bomb. I just assumed it was a mill. Oh, I was a bit, I was a bit stupid. I thought it was a mills bomb. Yeah. You would assume, you would assume it was a mills. Yeah. And I did it first, but I watched it again just before we, we sat, we sat down to talk about it. And I thought, nah, they'd never throw a, They'd never throw a mills bomb at a tank. There's no way. And I thought, Oh, you know what? That's probably, that's probably an, a, an 82 gammon bomb. And Gammon was actually a member of the parachute regiment. Okay. Yeah, the guy, the guy that designed it was a Captain Gammon, and he was a member of the Paris. Fun side fact. Because it's a meaty grenade. <laughs> Gammon bomb's gone in, hasn't knocked the tank out. Be very lucky if it did. Might knock a track off. Who knows? Mm. 
S- sergeant comes up and he goes, let's have a crack at it with the piazza. Can we have a shot at it with the piazza? Okay, off you go. The the Piat team, the number one, number two, sort of like double off around the flank. The number one's there with the Piat, the ready. Number two drops down beside him, slams a, a bomb into the tray, seats it home, and the guy opens up and he, the it's the best representation of a Piat in action because these men clearly knew how it worked. They've been trained on it. They'd probably use it in action. These aren't actors that have been taught how to do it by a, an armourer, a film armourer. They've, they've sat in training, had the lectures, you know, the sergeants told them how it works. They've probably had a crack at it on the range. They've probably used it in action. It's a great representation of the Piat. That's one of the one of the best scenes in the film, I think, where they, they show this Piat doing what it would have done in the hands of people that knew how it worked and, and how to use it. You're, you're a Piat expert. You know, there's no, there's no bones about it. You are. You wrote a bloody book on the thing. Do you think they fired real Piat rounds? At that Sharpie, well, from what you know, I would imagine they f- they were firing real rounds, but I don't know whether they were firing at that Sharpie. That's a shame if they weren't. There's another scene that I'm going to mention, which is Private Dixon, where he goes off to have a crack at the Panther. It's a great scene. Oh, that's a great scene. Fantastic. I love it. Both the Piat scenes in this film are worth the entry price alone. They're just great. Yeah, well, you've got to remember that the Piat was a pivotal weapon for the battle and for the Paras. Every every account you read of Arnhem has got a Piat in there somewhere. You know, I don't know whether the listener knows or not, but when paratroops drop, they don't drop with tanks. They don't drop with 25-pounder anti-tank guns. They don't have that luxury. They, they drop very lightly. The other great scene with the Piat in, in, in theirs is, um, is features uh, Private Frank Dixon, who uh, was with the, I believe he was with the 21st Independent, uh, para company and basically the commander of the the independent the 21st independent is sat lamenting his lack of of um of anti-tank guns because they've either run out of ammunition or they've been knocked out yeah and it's late stages of battle and he, he turns to dixon who's at the, at the time doing a bit of cooking he's you know he's cooking up some dehydrated porridge or something i don't know Dixon pops outside he puts his cooking down picks up a uh, a piat and a, a three-round bomb carrier uh, and he, he sort of like runs off down the hall and the house is, the house is shaking with shell fire. Yeah. Bits of the ceiling are falling down. The door frames sort of like falling in, pops outside, uses, uh, I think, I think he uses one panther as cover and then takes on another panther. In reality, it wasn't a panther that he, he took on. It was, I think it was a Mark IV. Um, I think I've seen some accounts that say it was a Stug, but I think, I think it was a Mark IV. Either way, you don't want to be that close to a, to a German armored fighting vehicle. Going back to like um, the Panther, that was a wreck left from the battle, and it just happened to be in that street. So you can see, like, you just just from a historical standpoint, you can see what kind of stuff these lads yes. were going up yeah. against with the Piats. You know, you know, we're not sure from the movie if those couple of Panthers were taken out by anti tank guns or Piats, but they may have broken down. We don't know. They might have, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, Panthers, you never know, really, do you? But um, you can really see what the guys were going up against um, in this movie, for me, a lot more than Bridge Too Far, because... Well, obviously, in A Bridge Too Far, you get that one scene with the, the, the brilliant bridge scene, which is great. That's a really great piece of cinematography. It's an amazing scene. But obviously, later on, you see that, that one 
leopard two dressed up as a as a panther or any any sort of panzer and it's just it's that's horrific isn't it it is it's a it's a shame and you know they did the best with what they had you know not they didn't have the luxury of a running panther or anything they could have just got a stug i always wondered was there not any running stugs or any running panzers it'd just been much easier wouldn't it yeah that's this hollywood for you Just some more sort of more favourite things about the film as well. From my end, talking about the sort of equipment used. Um, any people who follow me on Twitter, um, I, I posted up, with, I was watching There's Is The Glory a few days ago, and I spotted the number five, Jungle Carbine. It's a shortened version of a, of a Lee Enfield number four, um, and they were issued to troops in Burma and things like that for a, for a jungle weapon. However... By the end of the war, they were getting issued to the paratroops and they were getting, lo and behold, yep. the paratroops that were sent to Norway, who had fought at Arnhem, end up with them. So we were talking about getting issued the equipment. Yeah. So guys are walking around with the actual kit they probably had in Norway. Yeah, you know, they probably just put it all up in a kit bag and drove to Holland. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, that's probably the most... Um likely i i think that the number five started being issued to uh the commandos and the paras in northwest europe in uh early 45 so yeah it's, i i had spotted that that's a good spot that's a very good spot it's a blink and you'll miss it sort of thing but the guy walks down a road and it's like a shot a top-down shot of him and i was like that's a weird looking number four and then I, it dawned on me that the number five one of the interesting things from the book that we've been we've been sort of um, taking tidbits from is that during the second lift scene that you see the, the glider's wings fold in, where it sort of like has a bad landing and, and the wings fold up, the authors sort of sort of uh, surmised that that might have been footage from Varsity because it's foggy. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, no, I can see why. I can see why. I wrote down here um, in my notes that there's loads of footage of the gliders and a lot of that footage is cut, but there's a glider that comes down and it breaks in half. Yes. It lands nose down. They cut that out. Yes. And they cut out a scene of two gliders hitting each other and, and like just like mm. breaking apart. Yeah. So it, for me, I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's clever editing because you don't want to show that. No. You don't want to show that, that those gliders are really flimsy and you have a lot get of that accidents. One, that one distant shot of, of the glider having a bad land and its wing folding up. That's the only shot you get of... Really common. Yeah. I mean, they, they were made out of balsa wood, <laughs> essentially. But And the pilots that, that flew them don't get enough recognition. No, they, the glider pilot regiment really does not get enough. But yeah, um, it's just another sort of thing you pick up on, on like third or fourth viewing. You know, if, if you know Arnhem footage, it's like, oh, hang on. They're, they're making a conscious choice there not to show something mm. that's negative. Yeah. You know, which kind of that... That kind of now... They, they do it more in movies. They don't mind showing a bit of negativity in hindsight. But for then, it's a very, I think it's a very conscious choice. You don't want to show mm. that possibly some of these lads might not make it into the battle because they're dropped in wrong or the, the pilot makes a wrong turn and they fall, and, you know. Yeah. It's one of, that's, one of, that's one of the things about the glider pilot, right? The glider, um, the glider born infantry and the glider pilot regiment that people really don't think about. There was just as much, or if not more, danger associated with being 
glider-borne infantry as there was being a para. Yeah, definitely. You know, it takes balls to jump out of an aircraft, but it also takes balls to land in an aircraft with no engines. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's, yeah, it takes balls. And hope that two guys are going to get you down safely. Yeah. And the vast majority did. And that's an amazing testament to the skill of the glider pilot regiment. Uh, oh, another another uh, weapon that I spotted on my m- most recent viewing of the film was um, a two-inch mortar. Ah. There's a chap running along with a two-inch mortar sort of like tucked under his arm. Okay. Doubling along a road. And it's and it's a, an overhead shot like the one that you uh, spied the number five. Yeah. I wonder if that's a little reference to Kane there because he, he ends up running around with a two-inch mortar, he does, doesn't he? He does, actually. That's, very, that's a good point. So after after his exploits with the Piat using it in its like mortar role, Mm. Um, he did. He did take on some stugs with uh, a number two. Uh, sorry, a two inch rather. Yeah, he's firing it like. Yeah, almost direct. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's all these little sort of tales from Arnhem that we're we're not kind of sure whether they are or they aren't. There's hints of things, but it's, it's sort of you watch it every time you watch it, you pick up on something new. For this, I contacted um, Brian Desmond Hurst fan club on Facebook um, organization, mm-hmm. and I asked about the budget. They didn't have a number. But there was a guy who does a tours and he mentions there's is the glory Wayne does tours. Um, the guy I was chatting to. And he said, someone's watched it 400 times. Wow. And they still see new things. Wow. If that doesn't sell the movie, I don't know what will. That's real filmmaking though, isn't it? You know, that's Definitely, it really is with a cast yeah. of probably just under 40 people and a probably relatively limited budget and maybe one or two cameras and a fairly small crew. Apparently 100 and 120 paratroops. Really? That's that many? One interesting thing that we haven't discussed is the lack of enemy in the film. Yes. You very rarely see any enemy soldiers in the film. Four times, maybe, that they're yes. referenced. You, you only see them maybe twice. You see more dead Germans than you do see live ones. You do, that's very true. So you get pine shots of, of, of a few dead Germans. You, you get a distant shot of... Uh, some of them running down the bridge embankment. That's it. And there's that guy with the brain acting like he's shooting at them, but not. Yeah, that's clearly like uh, something they didn't know how they were going to do. And he sort of, sort he sort of follows the figures with the with the muzzle. You can see him moving with them, and ha- and he sort of pulls back a bit as well. Like he's he does he's sort of mimic. miming that you would probably be firing. And I was kind of sat there thinking, why don't you open up? Oh, come on, they're right there. But it's a really interesting scene because that's basically the only time you see any enemy on screen. But there is uh, a scene where you see a German sentry. Oh, yeah, the hospital. At the hospital. You see a a German sentry and he's got a uh, K-98K. Stick grenades in his belt. Yeah, he's got like three stick grenades in his his belt and like one in his boot. And he's got some MG uh, 7.92 ammo belt around his neck. He's decked out and he's ready. He's ready for a scrap, this lad. Exactly. And you know what? He's a Dutch civilian. They paid to do that. Oh wow! We thought that it was a squaddy. We thought it was one of the paras. <laughs> you know, we thought what we did. Poor bastard had that job. Who pulled the short straw? Yeah. Even shorter. It was. A, it was apparently, according to the book again, the Bible for this particular episode. Um, it was. He was played by a Dutch civilian. So can you imagine what that would have been like for a Dutch civilian who had been occupied for four or five years to then go, well, I need the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the the, 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 the the thoughts that must have been going through his head of, of like putting on an enemy uniform and portraying an occupier. However, he does 
not him, but the, the character of the Sentry gets killed. Does he? Yeah, he does. A shell comes in, and he and he just he kind of falls on the floor, and all the lads, sort of the the, the lads in the hospital, were looking out the window, and they sort of acknowledge the fact he's died. I missed that. Yeah, yeah. I think he gets blown up. Ah. So maybe maybe the the thought of being a German if you get killed isn't too bad. Maybe that was maybe that made it a little bit more palatable. Because yeah, there's no love lost between the, the Dutch and the Germans. No, not not then anyway. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think one gets. You see one German get killed. I think it's like the sniper on the roof. Yes, from a distance. Yeah. Gets him with the gets him with the Liam, and you see a guy fall off a roof. Yeah, but that's and it. He chucks it up on the wall. We were talking about whether that was real or not. Um, it's one of the museums in Oosterby, Arnhem. I can't remember which one, has a piece of wall that says, no surrender, fuck the Jerry's. And it's got like <laughs> a little um, graph and it's like swastikas. It definitely doesn't say fuck the Jerry's in the film. No, it does in this picture I found, which I think... It says no surrender. I know that much. But yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. But that's probably another one of those things that, you know, they the, they said to the producer, well, this is something we did. Five pounds, please. Yeah. And I think as well, it's it's part of the thing. You're there for, you were there for a week. You're only meant to be there for two days or so. Mm. So you, you've got to alleviate the boredom. And it's the classic humour, isn't it? It gets you through the horror. <laughs> Definitely. And I always like that saying, um, you know, who's got better humour than the British soldier, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, there's sections where... The loud tailor and that, that's quite funny. Exactly. And there's there's also that scene where he's brewing up, he's making tea and they're under heavy fire. And it, there's sort of like, there's some urgency in some of the other lads in the scene's voice where he's like, here they come. You know, he opens up with a brain and he's just carrying on pouring out the tea from his from his helmet or a tin. And, you know, he's, he's clearly like, he's not paying any attention. I've got to get the brews out first. Yeah, he's getting it. I'm not standing to until everyone's had the brew. Okay. <laughs> great should put on a t-shirt i'm not standing to until we've had a brew that's great that's gonna be merch (laughs) so we've talked about our favorite scenes we've given you a little bit of a rundown so Matt, is there anything you want to add to our This Is The Glory rundown there? I just think it's it's a film that's sort of been lost to the popular consciousness. And every time that you share it with someone, they're always surprised that they haven't heard about it. Yeah, they are, actually. So there's a number of times where I've shared it with, with friends who, who enjoy history and they've been like, why have I never seen this before? Why hasn't this been on TV? Why haven't, you know, why have I never heard of this? Why has this never been on my radar? And I think that's a real shame because the film is not only a great telling of the story, it does the men who fought at the battle justice just as they hoped it would. Like I'd, ne- I'd never heard of it and I was doing some Arnhem research and I came across it. And then it's now, it's like my genuinely one of my most favourite films. It's, it's one of the best war films about British troops in action made, definitely. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed us rambling about Theirs is the Glory, an absolutely impeccable war film, which is definitely worth your time and viewership. You can find us over on Twitter, at FightingOnFilm, and you can also reach us through the hashtag FightingOnFilm. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.